Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mission and Meaning, a monthly podcast that connects you with the important mission-related learning and work happening around our Sacred Heart community. I'm your host, Ben Su, Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Access, and a member of the Office of Mission, Culture, and Strategy. At the moment, we're in a five-part series that explores the theme of restoration, how it's connected to each of our five Sacred Heart goals, and how restorative practices are already powerfully present in many of our school spaces. Today's guest is Brisa Diaz, Director of Mission and Culture for the P8, who's currently guiding equity work and helping to shape school culture. For this month's episode, Brisa will be sharing about how restorative practices, and specifically Tier 1 and Tier 2 circle practices, can have powerful outcomes for students and educators. Brisa brings a wealth of personal and professional experiences to her work with students and educators, and she'll be sharing more deeply about how so many of these experiences have informed her work and her passion for restorative justice. Hello, everyone. My name is Brisa Diaz, and I'm the Director of Mission and Culture for the Lower Middle School. For more than a decade, I have been an equity-centered teacher, team leader, and restorative justice practitioner. I'm the proud daughter of Mexican parents and a first-generation college student who discovered her passion for education while attending UC Berkeley. I received my master's from Loyola Marymount University after writing my thesis on how gentrification was affecting my Latino students in the Mission District, San Francisco. My passion for restorative justice was sparked by the first public school I taught in, which was a Title I school that served a community with many financial, emotional, and academic needs. As a new teacher, this was rough for me. I didn't have classroom management skills, and at times it seemed impossible to get through a lesson without being interrupted. My saving grace was that I knew how to build relationships, and so I shifted my focus to seeing students for their gifts more than their needs. As I embraced this asset-based mindset, my school was also fully adopting restorative justice as a way of building staff resilience, nurturing a positive school culture, and transforming the way it addressed school discipline. For those that missed the first episode of this series, restorative justice is an approach that brings people together to reconcile and build relationships when harm has been done. A major tenet of restorative justice is that harm affects everyone in the community, both the victims, whoever does the harm, and the larger community. Therefore, decisions about how to repair the harm must be determined by the people affected, as they are the only people who truly know how to make things right. Restorative justice aims to build understanding, explore how the wrongdoing has impacted those involved, and to develop agreements that increase trust, safety, and understanding so that things are better in the future. Suffice to say, my work at that school changed my life trajectory in ways that could not be captured in a single episode. At this point in my career, I have focused on equity-centered work within education all over the Bay Area, and in 2021, my journey brought me to Sacred Heart. I'm grateful that part of my current work as Director of Mission and Culture is to find opportunities to slowly, literally one circle at a time, adopt these practices as a way of doing things at our school. For this episode, I will talk about restorative justice through the lens of Goal 5. Goal 5 reads, schools of the Sacred Heart commit themselves to educate to personal growth in an atmosphere of wise freedom. I'll begin by focusing on the personal growth piece. I firmly believe that community circles are a key vehicle in cultivating personal growth, reflection, empathy development, and character building that help our youth navigate their local and broader surroundings. 
I'll paint a picture of how community circles are implemented so you can see why we consider them the foundation of a well-connected community. Throughout my years as a practitioner, I have come to believe that using restorative justice to heal harm can only be effective when people have a base level of care or just some degree of mutual respect. After all, you can't meaningfully restore a relationship that never existed in the first place. That is why the bulk of our work is about building a solid foundation. You might be asking yourself, okay, but like, what does that look like? Well, let me describe to you the rollout of circles within a typical school year so that you can get a better understanding. Let's say it's the first month of school and I've asked the class to move their chairs around and form a big circle, making sure that we can all see each other's eyes as a sign of respect. We ground the circle by repeating the norms we created at our first session. These are typically something like speak authentically, say just enough, and actively listen. We also have a talking piece, an object that holds meaning and tells the group whose turn it is to talk. I make sure to invite and encourage every student to speak at least once without interruption because this is a critical part of circle practice. I then go around and have students answer the day's prompt. Because of the vulnerability that a circle can promote, it's important to build comfort. And so I start with what we call low-risk questions. I might ask something like, what's your favorite candy bar? Who's your favorite artist? And so on. There might be some awkward periods of silence in the beginning. This might be because students who are accustomed to fading in the background are now being encouraged to center themselves. Or perhaps because students do not come from a household where it's normalized to share about themselves every day. Whatever the case may be, we honor the silence. We do not fill in space with empty chatter. I also remind some of our eager beavers, or students that have been socialized to always share what they think, to take a step back and wait until everyone has shared before they add another thought. I smile and let the circle know it is normal to feel uncomfortable and a bit challenged. We'll get better at this over time. I want to pause and highlight how powerful this is, that every student gets to speak at least once. A community circle seems so simple, but I see it as the great equalizer, an act of resistance in a hierarchical world. Teachers are also active participants that answer the prompts alongside students. Regardless of perceived status, background, and any other identifier, all students get to speak their truth and hold the attention of the circle for approximately equal amounts of time. After some weeks pass and we build a safe enough space, we start to answer prompts that explore our values and character. The ritual remains the same in that we get in a circle, recall the norms we have created, and use the talking piece to show whose turn it is to talk. But now we move into some deeper questions like, what would you do if you were not afraid? What is something you regret? What is something people assume about you that is not true? There's so much power in the circle when people feel free to speak their truth. And this type of agency and voice typically transfers to other spaces beyond the circle. Every year as a teacher, I got to witness students blossom from being shy and reserved to then taking up space and sharing their voice in ways that had never been observed by the class before. Then, naturally, through the course of the year, we start to discuss real issues that affect us personally and the community as a whole. We may tackle questions like, what is it like to experience this school in the skin you're in? Or what gender dynamics do we need to address and fix at our school? Can you imagine the student responses, the empathy that is cultivated as each student gets to share their experience? At this point, I've facilitated hundreds of community circles and I'm always struck by its transformational power. You can have a group of strangers in the beginning sitting in awkward silence, 
but by the end they are laughing or perhaps crying and often leaving with a new connection. I painted a picture of a community circle's ability to develop personal growth, but now I want to focus on the second portion of Goal 5, our belief in creating an atmosphere of wise freedom. The phrase wise freedom immediately makes me think about our efforts to use restorative circles to support students in addressing harm. These are not to be confused with community circles. It is our job as educators to supply students with the tools, lens, and skills necessary to navigate this messy and complicated world. Our duty is not to protect them or shelter them from wrong. Our goal is to supply them with the critical tools that will help them discern right from wrong. This freedom does not mean freedom from mistakes. It means we expect them to stumble, but our intention is to help them make things right. A central tenet of restorative justice is that human beings do not thrive when we do things for them. There's no lasting lesson there. Instead, we aim to do things with them so they can gain the skills for the next time they stumble, which is inevitable. So what is an example of a restorative response to harm? I'll give you a made-up and simplistic scenario. Let's say the administrative team is informed that Timmy is in the office crying because Sally was making fun of his stutter. Our immediate response is to comfort Timmy and ask him what he needs at that moment. Maybe he needs to call home, take a moment to himself, or talk to the counselor. It's clear that real harm has been committed by Sally, and in our preparation to mend this breach, we use a restorative approach and ask ourselves, who has been hurt or affected? What are their needs? Who is responsible for meeting these needs? In this scenario, it's obvious to all of us that Sally was out of line, and Timmy is the one that has been harmed. But sometimes incidents can be more complex, and these questions help to guide us in determining next steps. Once Timmy is calm and ready to share, we ask him a series of open-ended questions that are standard in restorative circles. They are something like, what happened? What were you thinking or feeling at the time? How have you been affected by this? What needs to happen now so that harm can be repaired? As the supportive adult, my role is to help Timmy in identifying what the harm was and how it impacted him. When he is ready, I encourage him to think about what he needs from Sally in order to move forward. Some students immediately know what they need, an apology perhaps. Other students struggle to name any next steps because they don't want to get someone in trouble. My role is to work with him to name a next step that holds Sally accountable to addressing and ultimately fixing the situation. Eventually, Timmy decides he needs an apology. I thank him for using his voice and asking for what he needs. Before he heads back to class, I give him a primer for what my conversation with Sally will look like, and I ask him if he would want an in-person apology or a handwritten one. He decides that in-person is okay. Then, we talk to Sally and ask her a similar version of questions. What happened? What were you thinking or feeling at the time? Who has been affected by this? What needs to happen now so that harm can be repaired? At first, Sally's embarrassed and tries to deny having said anything. I pause, tell her we know something happened, and that my goal is to help her make things right. I ask her to start over. Then she confesses. Timmy was ignoring her during math class, so she decided to make fun of his stutter to get his attention. I thank her for being honest, and then I ask her how she thinks this affected Timmy and what she should do to fix it. Here I'll pause for a second and compare this process with the traditional punitive approach that would only ask, what rule was broken? Who did it? How should we punish them? Yes, this is a much faster process. Yes, we can give Sally detention every week until the end of the school year. But where is Timmy in all of this? Does he actually get what he needs? What happens when Timmy and Sally see each other in the hallways or in class? What has Sally actually learned aside from making sure she doesn't get caught next time? Back to the scenario. After being provided support with brainstorming, Sally determines that she needs to apologize to Timmy. I ask her how she wants to do it. 
and she says she'd like some time to write an apology and then tell him in person. She works on a draft and sends it to me to revise. It becomes clear to me in reading the letter that she's actually not aware about why Timmy would be so hurt by her comments. At this point, I have contacted her parents to update them about the plan and ask them to talk with her about the situation. Then I meet with her in person the next morning and show her a couple of YouTube videos about people with stutters and how bullying has impacted them. She has a breakthrough and edits her apology. I then prep her for the conversation that we're gonna have with Timmy. She agrees and says she's ready. Now that I have two students that have agreed to engage in the process, I prepare my agenda and have a private space to hold this conversation. I start by sharing the norms of the circle. Everyone will speak for themselves, listen with intention, speak their truth, and keep the conversation in the room. It's important that the person that was harmed speaks first. I ask Timmy the same sets of restorative questions from before. After he speaks, I also ask Sally the same questions as before and then prompt her to read her letter. Her thoughtful letter brings a tear to Timmy's eyes. There's a gravity to the room that is hard to describe. You have two young children that are grappling through a really tough situation and handling it with impressive maturity. I asked Timmy if he accepts the apology and if there's anything else that needs to be shared. He says he accepts the apology. I asked Sally what her commitment will be in her interactions with Timmy moving forward. She said she will not make fun of him for his stutter again and will respect when he needs space within the classroom. I thank them for their maturity in handling the situation and walk them back to class. Later that day, I see them sharing space in the cafeteria, seemingly unbothered. Now this was a completely made up scenario, but typical of issues that I've tackled before. I hope this simplistic example has shown you, like Dr. Sue mentioned in a previous episode, that responsive circles not only help to resolve conflicts, but they also build social, emotional, and ethical capacity in those involved. It looks for the root causes of the harm, supports accountability for the one having caused harm, and promotes healing for all involved. To be transparent, this is a lot of work, but we're not in the business of solving problems for students. Instead, we want to support them in navigating the wise freedom they deserve. Thank you for your attention and listening to one of my greatest passions, restorative justice. My hope is that I've painted a clearer picture of how community circles help to create meaningful relationships and how restorative circles can provide a space for true healing. Circles are always an invitation. And if you're a parent in this community, I hope that you'll support your child should they accept to be a part of this process. Thank you again, Brisa, for sharing about the power of restorative circles and for all the work you do with our students. And this concludes another episode of Mission and Meaning. If you have any questions or thoughts, please reach out directly to me, Ben Sue, at bsue at shschools.org, or contact the Office of Mission, Culture, and Strategy at omcs at shschools.org.